Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, the podcast where we cook up a delicious blend of cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection topics to serve you a hearty bowl of insights. Whether you like your gumbo spicy with a dash of encryption or prefer a milder flavor with a side of compliance, we've got you covered. So grab a spoon, sit back, and let's dive into the pot of data protection gumbo. All right, gang, everyone, welcome to another episode of Data Protection Gumbo. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro. So I have a fantastic guest on. His name is Chris Ware, and Chris is an Australian-based serial tech entrepreneur who has spent 20-plus years devoted to developing innovative software solutions across the financial, media, and also healthcare industries. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Verita, a network of decentralized data storage, messaging, and single sign-on solutions, enabling inoperable ownership of personal data for Web3. So, Chris, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. All right. So, I guess the first question would be, tell us a little bit about Verita. What is the company all about? Yeah, sure. So, the, the journey for Verita actually started when I um, was running a previous company. So here in Australia, uh, I ran a business called Community Data Solutions, and we were providing software, so software as a service, um, uh, to non-profit organizations in Australia. And we had about 150 sort of enterprise clients with thousands of, of customers, uh, and users, sorry. And we were responsible for a lot of personal information. So we captured people's you know, name and date of birth, but we were also helping a lot of vulnerable people in the community. So we had things like uh, people with gambling addiction and, and notes about their, their gambling history or domestic violence or, mm-hmm. um, or you know, other, other issues that people were sort of working through. And we had to protect this information mm-hmm. in, a, in a really important way. P-I-I. Exactly. And so I got a really good insight into not just, I guess, building the technology to protect that data, but also the human element um, and the human interaction between software and providing support to people. And I did a lot of training. I went out to, I traveled the country and I delivered training and, and spoke to people that used our software. And I got some, a really interesting piece of consistent feedback where they loved our software. They, they loved what it was doing. It was ticking all the boxes, which was great. But there was a, a fundamental flaw where if somebody came and uh, accessed a service, so let's say I had a gambling problem and I came and accessed some support, um, I might come and come and talk to you and I might spend 40 minutes talking to you and telling you my life story and you put it into a computer system. And then you say to me, hey, hey, Chris, look, thanks for that. Um, I'm actually going to refer you now to go and talk to Dave and to Jill and to Jane, you know, because you've got a gambling problem, you also have problems with your finances and it's hurting your marriage and, you know, just go and see these other people. And as a, uh, you know, an individual, I now have to go and repeat my story three times so that those people can put my story into their systems, which are all uh, not, they aren't interoperable. And I realized that um, we've kind of created this problem where we've lost control of, our identity and uh, you know who we are, and we've lost control as individuals because of the way that we've structured the the technology that we use today. And so that was really the start of Verita for me because I decided, well, this is a problem I really want to try and tackle. And um, I looked at where 
you know, what exists today that could perhaps address this problem? And, and cryptocurrencies were the obvious one. You know, you have this concept of I have a private key um, and that key allows me to control my digital assets. And, you know, the idea fundamentally was, okay, if we can take that same concept, I have a private key and now I can control my data and I can easily share it with other people. I don't have to repeat, you know, information and um, I can regain control. And, and that was sort of the impetus of, of starting Verita. Okay, yeah, that, that's a very fascinating story. And, you know, this is this is my, my type of conversation because um, I, I want to I jump around a little bit too. And that's why this is called Data Protection Gumbo. So I, I can just kind of throw different things into the pot. Uh, and then just kind of weave in a common thread of a topic, which would definitely be around data protection and data sovereignty and, and all of those different types of things. And we'll, we'll weave in some blockchain and cryptocurrency uh, here and there as well. But I, I really want to get your, your take on, I mean, we, we, we keep hearing all of this news around, you know, these different cyber attacks and ransomware. I'm sure you've heard of ransomware if you haven't, um, something is, is wrong, <laughs> but I mean, we just heard some high-profile attacks um, in Vegas. I mean, and people are paying ransoms. And I, I really want to get your perspective on that since we're talking uh, blockchain and, and just protecting data. We're talking PII. And this is this is a, a great conversation to have. Well, what's your view on, number one, keeping keeping that data safe and, and maybe giving the listeners a few simple things that they can do in order to keep their own personal data safe and maybe even speaking from from an enterprise perspective. I don't know if you can maybe paint that picture as well. Yeah, sure. Um, it's probably one of the biggest problems that we have, I think, today in, in technology. And um, it's something that we talk to people and think a lot about. Uh, I'm personally... I mean, the irony is that I've personally been exposed to probably four of the most high-profile hacks in the last two years here in Australia. So there was a health insurance company, telecommunications company. Um, there, there was a couple of others as well, a bank, a credit card company. Um, and I was exposed through nothing that I did wrong. Like, you know, I was just a purely a victim of the fact that the the enterprise software that those companies were using was not adequately secured or there was a breach or there was a social engineering attack on employee that then gained access to that data. And that's actually a part of the fundamental problem that we've created with the systems we're using today. You know, the concept of a centralized system is where, you know, you get millions of customers and you put all of their data in one spot and all of their personally identifiable information um, you know, social security numbers, you know, names, addresses, phone numbers, um, all of these things are all in one spot. And so what that does is it creates a huge economic incentive for a hacker because if they can breach this system just in one spot, they get millions of um, people's, you know, people's data. And, you know, really what we are advocating at Verita and the technology that we've developed is designed to flip that economic incentive model in, on its head because if each of us have control over our data and we only share it with companies on demand and then they discard it um, they don't have that data stored in these centralized platforms um, they can access it they can request it from me at any time and i can say yep hey i'll give it to you for an hour or for a day or, or whatever's needed um, but it's not sitting there for hackers and so now the attack surface for hackers completely changes if i want to 
attack and get a million people's data. I have to, you know, attack a million mobile phones. You know, I have to attack a million desktop computers. And the cost of that just doesn't make sense. And so um, we unfortunately are going to continue to see these large-scale hacks of millions of people until um, there's a, a change in the industry. And unfortunately, you know, you can't have change until there's new options available. And that's really what we're doing, Breeders. We're, we're starting this journey of, hey, look, let's create another option here. Let's create another way that enterprises can manage data, that users can be, you know, providing consent and having more control. And um, that also goes with the regulation. In, in the uh, Europe, you've got GDPR, which is providing rights around individuals, around ownership and control of their, you know, digital rights and, and data and the right to be deleted. Um, yeah, and you've got similar things in other countries and, and, and in different industries. There's a lot of uh, similar sort of uh, regulations in healthcare that's emerging in the US. And so there's a shift towards regulation to empower the individual. But there's not yet, I think, an understanding or a shift in regulation to say, hey, you companies, you shouldn't be keeping all this data. You shouldn't. You know, there should be a way here where you, you just request it from people when you need it. And uh, I think that's a maturity that you know we're hoping will come in the next sort of five to 10 years. And, and hopefully we're a part of that solution. Yeah. And is, is this a part of what you're calling self-sovereign identities where individuals can maybe gain control of, of their own personal data and maybe lease that data out for a set period of time to an organization or someone who needs that information about you? Yeah, exactly right. So, the concept of self-sovereignty is, you know, user-controlled, user-owned, um, and we take a fairly rigorous approach to that. So what that means is that as an individual, you can create a self-sovereign account, and uh, it's anonymous by default. It's just like a random string that, you know, is the only thing that identifies you. And so as a user, you can use that and be completely anonymous, or you can start to add layers of additional information you know you can give yourself a username or you can give yourself a name you can specify what country you're from at a profile image so there's a a range of like levels of how you can sort of expose yourself but ultimately that gives you the ability to control lots of different types of data so for instance you might go to a healthcare provider and say okay i'm going to share i'm going to give you a key and unlock all of my healthcare data for the next 48 hours for for you or I'm going to say, I'm going to see this this physician for my knee surgery for the next six months. So I'm going to give permission for the next six months to always have access to my data relating to my surgery and my rehab rehabilitation. So starting to think about rather than people having access to all the data, it's specific pieces of data for specific purposes, for specific time periods, and you know having a, both the technology and the user interface for people to make sense of the, the decisions they're making around their, their identity and their data. Yeah, and let's. Uh, I hope you don't mind us getting maybe geeky a little bit and talking about maybe some of the technology and maybe shifting because I am not as familiar with what they call Web 2 versus Web 3 and, you know, kind of what that technology stack looks like besides, you know, you have compute. Then you have some type of storage and then you have the networking and, you know, nowadays you got identity. And I just had a conversation around identity orchestration and, you know, plugging in with different orchestrate, well, not orchestration, but identity access management platforms and different components because data is everywhere. Users are everywhere. And if maybe if you could walk us through, I guess, what, what does your technology stack look like and behind the scenes of kind of like the compute, 
the identity authentication messaging and you know maybe walk us through how you guys thought about setting all of that up it whatever you can share yeah sure so um just very quickly i guess let me just jump back to web one versus web two versus web three so web web one is broadly characterized as like the read-only web so that was the, the, the days where you basically had a web browser and you just click and read click and read you just you didn't really create content you just sort of consumed and surfed the web um was that in the 90s or like yeah pretty much late sort of DARPA, mid to late 90s yeah. and yeah that was my early days growing up using the internet mm-hmm. it, was, it was very much like that um different browsers netscape um things like that we then kind of evolved to what's broadly classified as web 2 which was called like the read write web so it was where we all started to create content people started to write blogs there was the advent of social media so we started to post you know to facebook and to twitter and um well myspace was sort of MySpace. the start of that web yeah, kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. so so that's sort of where we have evolved and, and really what web 3 is is about is actually read and write but it's actually own and control as well so um, with the concept of a cryptocurrency, you can kind of own a part of the technology that is being used daily by people. You know, you, the only way you can do that in Web2 is if you own shares in Facebook or, or Google, whereas with the crypto space, you can sort of participate and be a part of different parts of the, the, the technology that you're using every day. Um, and Hold on. I, 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 just missed, I just missed something you said about you can you only own if you, you can only do that if you own Facebook or google no so what i was saying is um like in crypto in, in the web3 space you can mm-hmm. own part, like ethereum you can own parts of blockchains you can own okay. parts of the, the applications by owning the cryptocurrency and it's quite accessible to people mm-hmm. um you know you can write some code and earn tokens as a part of contributing to a project oh, okay Got whereas it. in web2 the only way that you can own a part of you know a facebook or a google is if you go and buy shares and okay um, go through the stock market so it's um, you know, obviously a very different model there in terms of how ownership works and, and how people can be involved in, in um, the evolution of this space. And so what where we sit is um, in Web2, when you build a piece of software in Web2, you need to have a bunch of uh, pieces of infrastructure. So you need identity, you need authentication, which is often like a, a username and password. You need some sort of messaging, which is normally email, uh, you need st- storage of your personal data, so you need like a database. Maybe there's like images and videos, so you need um, like a block storage of like large files, which is often like a on Amazon S3 bucket or, or CloudFront through a CDN. So there's a whole bunch of pieces of, of technology that you need, and of course com- computation. And so the problem that Web3 has had is uh, it's trying to sort of replace Web2 um, uh, applications but it's really only had a few of those pieces of infrastructure that have really been built out. So blockchain is decentralized computation. You've got things like, uh, you may have heard of like IPFS or Rweave and Filecoin. They're decentralized file storage, so great for images and videos. But there's there's these other pieces kind of missing. There's this identity, authentication, messaging, um, and then private data, database encryption, you know. So... Um, what we've tried to do at Verita is actually close the gap and have um, uh, those pieces of infrastructure built out that connect to different blockchains and connect to different storage methods so that a developer can come along and go, oh, I'm going to build an alternative to Facebook or I'm going to build a new type of insurance product or real estate product or whatever that happens to be. And they've got 
all of the tools that they need to be able to build such a product in Web3. And that for us is, I guess, really important because there's a lot of promise around this technology and what Web3 can become, but it can really only fulfill its promise if it has a full set of technology and tools sitting underneath it. I'm going to ask an off-the-wall question. <laughs> Should we still be investing in cryptocurrency? Uh, this is not for I am curious. Um, <laughs> I think that um, <laughs> the, I like to draw an analogy back to the, the late 90s, early 2000s. The, you know, we had the, um, uh, the dot-com boom and, and bust. And fundamentally what that was was a huge amount of speculation. Oh, this internet thing is going to be massive. It's going to be big. You know, everyone's buying up all these domain names for millions and millions of dollars. And at some point that speculation died. You know, it was like everyone's just gone crazy here. You know, it's like tulip mania and the bottom fell and, and the bottom fell out of it. And uh, all of these, you know, stocks, these, these, uh, you know, web two companies really died. And, um, but then what happened is from there, you ended up with like the early 2000s up until you know now even, this incredible growth, this absolutely phenomenal growth that has been fairly sort of exponential but also you know fairly constant in, in the way it's gone. And I think there's a very similar analogy here with Web3. I think we've seen uh, – we've probably seen a few more uh, speculative bubbles, um, which is there's another dynamic here around Bitcoin and the Bitcoin halving that tends to sort of pump money in on some of these four-year intervals into the crypto space. Um, but we're still – we're really, I think, at this transition point between speculation and potential into real-world use cases that will deliver fundamental value. And so um, I think investing in cryptocurrencies as a, as investing in um, the dot-com boom and, and bubble is, is incredibly risky because – the vast majority of projects will fail, but the ones that succeed will be the Googles, the Amazons, the the Facebooks, you know, of, of Web3, and, and they will be incredibly, you know, successful. So, you know, as with any sort of investing, you, you sort of have that choice. Do you sort of um, invest in some sort of index where you can kind of get a whole bunch of exposure to a whole bunch of projects or, or choose the, the big names, or do you sort of go and try and speculate and hope to beat the market and, and pick the the few winners so obviously that's everyone's discretion but i think that's the analogy to think about it and um it still will take time for us to get to that maturity but there's a definitely huge potential here. okay that sounds like some some solid financial advice that's not financial advice but uh, <laughs> and uh, you know chris we, we can't close out an episode without talking about artificial intelligence and you know we just we just have to talk ai and ml at least once because it's kind of the hot buzzword right now and i don't even i don't know what's up with with elon musk and the statement i think he's trying to charge folks now for x or twitter or whatever you want to call it but we're not going to talk about that <laughs> but uh we are going to talk about artificial intelligence and maybe what they're calling digital assistance and this is something that i am interested in and also maybe you can give me the, your perspective on personal data and maybe artificial intelligence and digital assistance. How do you look at that? And do we need AI digital assistance uh, from your perspective or how should we look at those? So, yeah, it's a really, really interesting space. And um, the way that I see it is uh, our data today 
is, as I mentioned before, in all of these centralized platforms, you know, in the, the Googles and Facebooks of the world. And um, what that means is that your data is siloed. So you, you have only a bit of your data here, a bit of your data there. You know, there's a health system that has your health records. Um, there's different financial systems and banks that have your financial data, and it's all very scattered. Then there's your email as well that obviously has different things. Um, a part of our vision with Farida is to help people eventually pull all of their data from all of these other systems and take ownership and control of it. Sure, it may still be sitting in those other systems, and that may be the, the case for quite a while, but at least as an individual, I have access to all of my data in one spot. Where that, I think, gets incredibly interesting is um, how do I benefit from that as a user? Now, in years gone by, projects have tried to, to, to sort of have this concept of owning your data, but the only business model they've had to be able to create is to say, oh, now you can go and sell that data to advertisers or sell that to mm -hmm, researchers mm -hmm. and earn some money. Right. We don't think that that's intrinsically the way that people will get value. We think that using that data to benefit their daily lives is much better. And so this is where something like an AI assistant comes in. So imagine you have all of your health data, your financial data, all of your message history across all your chat you know, platforms, um, you know, all of the different Slack and discords and, and all of that stuff. And that's all uh, indexable and an AI can train privately over all of your data. And now you have this digital assistance and you can start to say, you can start to talk to it and it can actually start to proactively ask itself questions and go, hey, how can I help Chris today? Oh, okay, this is the answer to that. And then prompt me and say, okay, Chris, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. Or, you know, maybe if you want to get to this spot in your career, hey, there's a meetup you should go to and there's this person you should reach out to and connect. Here's, a, here's an intro that I've sent, you know, that I've drafted for you that you can send. Or um, I've noticed mm. this pattern where, you know, every time you, you drink three beers, the next two days you have a, a stomach problem, you know, maybe you should go and you know, <laughs> get this thing checked out, right? So, like, there's mm -hmm. ways that I think we can completely uh, leverage our data and use it for us for the greater good. And I think AI is going to play a really important um, and interesting role uh, in that future. Yeah, it's it's fascinating and it's also scary at the same time because you, you, you're you seeing that the the bad actors, the hackers, the guys out there that mean to to do everyone harm, they're, they're taking advantage of it and just increasing in sophistication and they are already like they're they're on the ai bandwagon and getting you know better and better and better and you know they're probably making way more money than we're making anyway because i keep hearing ransoms you know 15 million 30 million 40 million dollars being paid because data is being exfiltrated and you know i don't even know if they're still encrypting data but primarily now they're just stealing the data, taking a copy of it and saying that we're going to release it uh, into the public. So uh, we're going to ruin your, your reputation and then maybe you're going to go out of business. But one more question for you. And I always ask this question, uh, what are you reading or what, what's on your nightstand? <laughs> well, I'm a bit of a strange cat because I tend to uh, uh -oh. spend more of my time reading things like white papers. <laughs> so, um, okay, white papers, um, all right. But So on that vein, I'll actually recommend um, a white paper that people could be interested in for a project called Nillion. So Nillion is a, um, a, a project that is looking to do what's called trusted execution or confidential computing in a decentralized way. And so we were talking a minute ago about um, AI that's trained over our personal data. If, if we want to do that in a way that's, 
in using Web3 or decentralized and there's no centralized, you know, company that has access to that data to do that training. We're going to need these concepts of decentralized trusted com- computation environments where, um, you know, my data can be basically put into a computer, a decentralized computer and be used to train an AI model, but nobody can see what's happening inside that black box. It's it's a confidential environment. And so Nilian is, there's a few of these projects, but Nilian is a very interesting one, I think, that is leading the way in that type of confidential computing for, for Web3. And so there's a, it's a very interesting technology that's going into that. And how do you spell that? Uh, it's like million, but instead of an M oh, for Mary, okay. it's an N. Okay, yeah, it's spelled just the way it sounds. N-I-L-L-I-O-N is what I was going to type in. Okay, well, uh, look, super fascinating conversation, and uh, I wish we could keep going here and because I have so many other questions to, to ask you, and, and maybe I can get you back for a second episode uh, in, the near fu- in the near future as well. And before I let you go, I um, want to thank you for, for being a guest on the show. And uh, also put a plug in for the Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group that I run. And there are over 25,000 members in that group. And we have great conversations around cybersecurity, data protection, storage, backup, recovery, literally whatever, whatever you uh, whatever you want to talk about that's that's digital uh, related. So uh, I do appreciate everyone listening. And also, Chris, uh, thank you for being a guest on Data Protection Gumbo. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.